Good evening, and welcome to Intermittent Signal from David A. Westbrook. Tonight's episode is part two of After Hours at the Pandemia Lodge, a premature retrospective with recipes. The music has been composed, performed, and produced by Vincent Perlotto. As you will recall, 2020 was horrible, and at least at first, 2021s just seemed to be more of the same. My first essay is called Dispatch from Sickland, Dissolution and Truth in the Year of the Coronavirus. This piece was written, and the photo taken, in 24 feverish hours on January 6th and 7th in the wake of the riot in the U.S. Capitol. I was skiing at the time. A European friend texted to say, crazy things happening in Washington. I said, what? Still am, come to think of it. For those of you listening, I put this essay out with a close-up of a mule deer buck, which I've also used for the podcast link. Magnificent animal. Doesn't care about events in the U.S. Capitol. They know I come in peace, and so let me get close. Dispatch from Sickland. Some time ago, colleagues asked for a few words on how the pandemic has affected my research on access to distant archives, collaboration with interlocutors in other countries, maybe new conversations, things like that, I guess. They wanted text for some webpage. Also, my story, if I felt so inclined. It is nice to be asked, but just today, I couldn't help confronting darker questions. Once again, could not stop writing. A familiar symptom. All right, run with it. The novel coronavirus was identified in a very different United States on January 20th, 2020. We are nearing our first anniversary with the disease. During that transformative year, COVID itself has been talked to death, to make an offensive pun, and therefore has become painfully boring, tiresome for those of us fortunate enough to be well, have healthy friends and loved ones, paying jobs, comfortable houses, and so forth. For such lucky people, complaint is embarrassing, unworthy. So many have died. So many mistakes have been made. So many have lost so much. Such sadnesses are clear, at least at first pass. Yet the limbo into which we as a nation have been cast is also very difficult for reasons that are not clear at all. Why is it so hard to keep the spirits up, fighting spirits if nothing else? Something has been done to our subjectivity, harder to talk about than more tangible losses. I've been trying to think of another time and place that might have engendered feelings like these. What is now, with the prissiness of bureaucracy called the H1N1 pandemic of 1918, does not seem to be a very strong analogy. A similar disease and plenty of death, but too little sense of the weight of history revising itself and transforming even the survivors against their will, and too much under the shadow of the Great War, almost a coda to it. Perhaps the relatively early days of World War II, when the outcome was uncertain, might have felt similar, at least to some people in some places. Although my German mother tells me that life was what in hindsight seems bizarrely normal amidst the upper classes in the early years. The war was elsewhere. COVID is different here, as close as a face mask with its suggestion of the pillow pressed down. The disease affects our daily life in so many ways, even if one is relatively protected, and the nation appears to have gone mad under the strain, hence sickland. The early appearance of yet widespread failure to deliver vaccines, raising hopes and then dashing them on the rocks of incompetence, has further darkened the mood, and the death toll continues to spiral upward. Surely the vaccines will work, have to work, they simply must. Until then, however, who wants to be a late casualty, and how much longer, and what will the world look like? 
Pandemics, perhaps like long home wars, not one of our perennial exercise in defense from abroad, seem to be experienced in waves. At least as a writer, that has been my experience. For me, the first wave was not so bad, had its charms, as soldiers often sheepishly admit. Early on, in the spring of 2020, when we all thought it would be over soon, and before the election grew truly insane and the nation was racked anew by its ancient curse, race, I did some work that is, in my estimation, good. I was on sabbatical and in the mountains. Quarantine is not unlike finishing a manuscript, I joked, and completed two books and a few smaller texts. Summer rolled round. I rested, worked on houses with neighbor friends and family, photographed flowers and moose, tried to train dogs, enjoyed now-grown children, and there were things to do, consolations that now seem short steps from dressing up like shepherdesses and shepherds, but what the hell, one must live as well as one can under the circumstances. Of course I missed international travel, restaurants, bourgeois social life generally. Who wouldn't? And perhaps we will come to remember the era we seem to have left as prior generations were called the Jazz Age. Even now, my family remains comfortably situated, still employed, the children successful, all healthy, even if some of us are very vulnerable. I do count blessings. The news got no better. And sometime during the summer, maybe not until August, something in my head began to slip. Perhaps I just reached my limits. In September, I missed my parents' birthdays, my father's 80th, they're still fine on a different mountain. Anxiety over the vulnerable members of my family began to wear, but there was nothing to be done but wait some more and compulsively read the increasingly bitter news. Bad arguments threw me into a fury. Almost all writers, regardless of position, were idiots, thoughtless, which was the root of evil, Arnold argued, so they were bastards. Mendacious bureaucrats, seizures of authority, proletarianization, and violent images filled my mind. And racists, some murderous, unfeeling citizenry, and people dying alone while we couldn't be bothered to lower a flag. The entire country seemed beset by what my wife calls COVID rage, and our circles were not immune. It became hard to stay cheerful, much less generous, still is. It became hard to do much of anything. I should go to the gym, but not that either. We'll exercise more, eat less, drink less, tiresome. In an essay called Miasma, I wrote about being trapped by the cloud, by the poisonous social atmosphere, pathetically embodied by the forest fire smoke here in the West. I wanted to swim in the ocean. Shortly before the election, I wrote an essay called Ten Reasons Trump Resists Satire, which announced itself as an effort to clear my head, and which concluded in part, quote, The coronavirus has, of course, simply increased our screen time. The minutes adding to hours to days spent contemplating whatever, quote, Trump, close quote, means to us. Believers in progress of whatever partisan affiliation might want to consider that for a moment. Our devices may be expensive, but our consciousness has been colonized and impoverished, close quote. Maybe we have created an unbearable culture. And maybe the brave new human is formed largely by moralistic affiliation with lack of forgiveness for, distress at, not people in the flesh, but at images playing across the screen, rants, tweets, statements of virtue made by neo-peasants in the digital economy, overfed, volatile, and monitored. Perhaps the new human is a willing, enthusiastic, pathetic participant, citizen would be too bitter, in what used to be called the society of spectacle. I vent, therefore I am. No, no you're not, says Zuckerberg. Maybe late capitalism has finally choked on its own narratives, of all things. 
have flirted with writing a collection of works on the awfulness of the contemporary. Indeed, this text is derived from a fragment called Please Babysit My Guns. Said to be helpful, that is, babysitting guns, for presenting suicides among those with dark thoughts and weapons, euphemistically called lethal means, notably veterans, who don't survive what is often an impulse rather than a settled determination. And then, heading into winter, things began to feel downright Dostoevskian. Nauseous ennui has given way to a sort of frenzy. I can hardly stop working, dawn till dusk. I started reading books again, many books, and paid less attention to journalism. No social media. Feverish writing. Fragmentary, multiple topics, essays like this one, written through most of the night and attacked again in the morning. Other work and food ignored. Massive emails imposed on people I hope will remain friends. Giving stuff away, not caring about publication. I've always written, but usually as a way to say something as true and well as I could and not untainted by ambition. It takes years and is hard, requires discipline, sometimes a lot. Or it did. I've learned much, decided more, and even have some notes. The stuff of future books, maybe. More fundamentally, the fever has changed the way I stand in the world. Maybe this, the world I have, is pretty much it, at least for me. I don't want to offend anybody's progressive pieties, and I'm sure IBM will build us a smarter planet. Just machines to make big decisions, as the song says. While we will cope with developments as best we can, no doubt, and maybe we'll improve this or that, in some ways it just doesn't matter. I will still need to do what I need to do. It's not fatalism, not exactly a lack of ambition, and I'll admit that maybe I'm not quite there yet. Yet I note that some friends and more acquaintances have, or are stepping into, positions of real power, vast wealth, or at least institutional prestige. To my surprise, though I'm now old enough, 56 in a few days, for the success of others to be simply good, I'm happy for them, and no longer reproach myself, which is a relief. Real and easy generosity is a pleasure I did not know age offered. Nor does my newfound stance feel particularly free, if one understands freedom as a lack of obligation, quite the opposite. Better than ever, I know who I am, flaws and all, and pretty much what I should do and must endure lest this life. There is a kind of peace in that, a solidity. In short, I think the pandemic has aged me, and that is a good thing, liberating. Today's synchronicity might help me explain. I skied again this afternoon, wearing a smelly, sweaty mask with our youngest, about to turn 18. He has been teaching me a little about hip-hop, which I've heard since the late 70s, but rarely get. On the drive back over the Continental Divide, he played Kid Cudi's esteemed Man on the Moon from an album about mental health. White law professors are denied such language, denied even quoting such language, but I damn well get it. An earlier version quoted with approval, but there's the N-word. Anyway, I don't want to talk about race or the First Amendment or, but you should look the song up, Kid Cudi, Man on the Moon. It's always been a struggle to be real, as the kids truly have vaguely say, to indicate the desire for meaning rather than mere appearance, the desire to make human connections, you gonna love me, that makes us need to sing songs, paint pictures, write, or even do scholarly research, even if our shit sounds different, even if our world seems like shit, even if we can't shake it off long enough to count blessings, see beauty, even if love itself is threatened. Maybe the pandemic, and robbing us of so much contact, and replacing so much of it with thin media, 
should recall each of us to our real struggles. From this vantage, the pandemic doesn't essentially affect research, understood as the search for truth rather than professional position. Surely circumstances, what the Marxists used to call the material conditions, change, but the spiritual needs remain the same. We have this world, and so this is where we work to find meaning. I know politics is horrible, not for the first time, but painfully so tonight, with rioting in the U.S. Capitol building itself, a president deranged and four dead, and more talk of racial injustice, the nation locked in its poisonous narratives, most shallowly understood. Lethal means, though. But that's no excuse. For the past year, the news, stories sold as such anyway, has been a tempting vampire, naked and openly bent on sucking out our souls. But who can look away? Surely this is fascinating, often morbidly so. And citizens have duties, and therefore require knowledge. Apple news, as it were, said our serpent. At the same time, we must resist the urge to live through better television, validated by our followers. Each of us has our own work to do, while we still can stand anyway. And if we are to acquit ourselves well, a certain toughness and a proper sense of self, both hard-won, are required. The Carthusians maintain that the cross is steady while the world is turning. That's about where I am now. It will be modestly interesting to see how long I can take it, as Weber said of scholarship shortly before dying, probably of influenza, in another pandemic. Okay, that's too dark. Steady as she goes. Get some rest. the end of that one. The year ground on. I was teaching again via Zoom. By springtime, the vaccines had taken hold. It looked briefly like we were done. My family got together in August, wearing masks on flights, but we were emerging, and then we were not. The variants took hold, counterattacked as it were. Vaccines wouldn't keep you from getting it, but maybe you wouldn't die. Masks came back since nobody knew what asymptomatic really meant, but there weren't enough tests. Why not, by the way? The shit show returned. Largely because we don't know what to do besides repeat ourselves, to say nothing of the shameful business model of media, we decided to commemorate the riots at the Capitol. Time to rally the Dems, which gave rise to another essay. Dr. Cassandra heads to the bank. The guilty pleasures of civil war in the U.S. This morning, a buddy reposted a New York Times review of another book suggesting that the U.S. stands on the brink of civil war. The Times itself had already sent me the review, of course. Indeed, I've been inundated with annoyingly pretentious considerations of this question recently, so I responded to the posting with the text below, a sort of fresco drafted before the plaster dried. Much of the day was spent polishing and probably worsening the text, clarity paid for with effervescence. Oh well. By the afternoon, the New Yorker had weighed in along similar lines, as drearily predicted, and sometime during the evening, it was time to let go. It's difficult for somebody attempting social criticism and frustrated with academic publishing not to be cynical about the breathless discussions of civil war and not quite post-Trump America. These are difficult times, granted, but so are most times. We self-dramatize. A lot. 
Phones and social media have made things much, much worse, and not simply among the dispossessed. Indeed, the tendency of the Times and the Mandarin class generally to blame the dispossessed working classes for the nation's polarization is a little odd in light of the relatively declining fortunes of the lower ranks of the Mandarin class, as anyone struggling to pay off graduate school debt will recognize. On the other hand, at least so far, those on the lower rungs of the professional classes have confined themselves to little more than a polite, quote, socialism, close quote, scare quotes. That may change. Those really worried about civil unrest should keep eyes on young lawyers, not so much the dispossessed as the hungry, Jan Cassius. It's guys like Madison or Robespierre or Lenin who make revolutions, not some dispossessed redneck who can't get a job in the new economy and is worried about his declining status. But enough about my students. What are we to make of all the drama? Pache, comrades. I know, the Republicans, da-da-da-da-da, Trump and his minions, da-da-da-da-da. Like I said, these are hard times. For that matter, Cassandra was right about Troy, and things ended badly for her. My own relatives did not take Hitler seriously soon enough. Of course it can happen here. It has happened here. And if we have another civil war, then any literate survivors are likely to point to this or that prognostication, maybe even say the prophecies were self-fulfilling. Those things said, forces less grand are also at work. Not particularly subtle versions of the peasants are revolting have become memes among the mostly coastal mandarins, the email class bureaucrats like us, using the word broadly, who make our living with text, symbols, and large organizations, whether nominally public or private. The Atlantic has devoted the year to the proposition. The language is not very much. Sons of the soil, nativist, populist, deplorable, etc., etc. This is new. And one hears very similar things from other countries. This is hardly the first time a polity's elite has blamed its underlings rather than take thoughtful responsibility, well, any responsibility, for the polity's failings. And, sometimes in history, the peasants do revolt, of course, and then things may go badly for our kind. I don't honestly believe that, but then again, I wouldn't until they came for me. At least we will know, as we're herded to the wall, that we aren't, quote, sons of the soil, close quote. We are better. I'm not sure why we don't simply use peasant. Squeamish editors, no doubt. Historically speaking, one must concede that there may be right at the top. Just saying. We need not tarry long over that issue in our own case, of course. It doesn't sell books among the right sort. Besides, our current woes are obviously the peasants' fault. What with their nativist superstitions and general lack of couth? Only a misanthrope, traitor to his class, would ask, what if our modernity isn't enough? That might be a place to start real critical thought. Sadly, that would be work, which is tiresome. Nothing here Li Zhi did not know. Mandarin and critic of the Mandarin class. Book for burning. But there's no need to be so negative, I say. Maybe the revolution won't come. And even if it does someday, there are careers to be made while the deluge approaches. On the last day at Versailles, you can bet some courtier was still hustling. Even if we are waiting for the cake to be served, which I doubt, there's probably time to get famous make money, mostly by telling people what they want to hear. The review my buddy passed on is of a book that is both heated and in line, the academic equivalent of winning the lottery. Does anybody wish to bet, say it two to one, that the book won't be reviewed throughout the echo chamber? Well played indeed. As many of us can attest, intelligent books generally are in trouble, 
bought almost only by libraries and a few graduate students, both increasingly marginal. I'm on the editorial board of a modestly important and quite serious little magazine. It is really difficult to foster and distribute thinking, writing, read by more than a few people, and worth reading for non-professional reasons. One solution is writing for the trades and hoping for a review by the New York Times and thereby the rest. Even if you do have to pander a lot, it's good work if you can get it. So is owning a string of Panera franchises, and I like Panera, which is to suggest a far more likely doom for intellectual life in this country than peasants with pitchforks. But getting back to getting rich and famous, it helps to establish personal brand, maybe a podcast, build a following. You know the drill. Obviously, I'm being unfair by implication, probably just bitter sitting here fiddling with my sound editing software. It's possible that one or the other of these books saying much the same thing about the threat of civil war is a piece of really good work, learned, penetrating, creative, maybe even slyly witty, and somehow drawing the attention of the folks on the deck of the Gray Lady as it sinks into Midtown. Renzo Piana's steel spars do have something nameful about them, don't they? But do you believe that is the case? I am skeptical. Maybe if an interlocutor of mine actually read and personally recommended such a book, I would make time to read, foregoing something else. But the stack of books that should be read is high, my own work calls, and I strongly suspect I've seen this film and felt like the hero, well, at least better than other people, those peasants. That's important to me. I'm just so glad I'm not a beta. So, instead, I'll note that this morning's book just happens to align with the New York Times' immensely successful and confessed strategy of pursuing emotion, opinion, clicks, reader participation, lifestyle advice, video. The New York Times is too established to be called entrepreneurial, and the paper is the house organ of the Mandarin class, emphatically not speaking to the sons of the soil. But the Times shares much with the so-called ethnic entrepreneurs, that is, regular emotional stroking, phrased as thinking, demanding attention yet reassuring. Civil war, we are told, is on the horizon. You are a fine citizen just for reading this. Good thing you are not an uneducated, probably racist peasant. By the way, have you tried making sourdough from your own starter, or maybe retrofitted an old barn with solar? Translation, you are good. The war won't touch you. We weren't serious. It's a great narrative, though. Enjoy your prosperity. In translation. This is not all the paper does. But the New York Times does this, often. Such messages are repeated, reinforced, and their consumption monetized. Echo, echo. And as Shoshana Zuboff argues, the echoes are directed for profit rather than understanding. It works, too. The New York Times has never been more profitable. But it's not the paper of record. As suggested, social media, including the New York Times, degrades our politics and certainly makes our politics seem worse because there is fame and money in that, for papers, for platforms, and for authors, too. In a way, this is good news, because media is not the world. It just seems that way to symbol manipulators. If one enters, say, a discount tire, or a hospital, or the DMV, or any number of other working places, maybe even a farming town inhabited by daughters and sons of the earth, the political situation looks much less bleak. Not perfect, still all too human, but people really do work together and live, play, love, suffer together. The intellectual situation in this country, I worry, is worse than our politics, and that has consequences for a republic that claims to be founded on enlightenment for another day. And for those on a walk or otherwise with a bit of space, it's a great time to be thinking. So, now it's spring break again. 
The prodigal has come home to ski. Craig and Grace are back in Spain. The masks are off most places. We will no longer give picnics with neighbors in the road. COVID is still out there, of course. We have lost a million people. The Chinese are taking top-down containment and surveillance and bottom-up vulnerability to new extremes. God save their people. There's a land war in Europe. The post-war order, certainly the post-Cold War order, is being redefined. Also, climate change seems to resist the news cycle. Stubborn. Imagine. At any rate, the pandemic no longer defines the moment. Hence this retrospective, premature as it is. Recipes. I started with food and let me end with food. It seems right to close with something not yet made. Just imagined. Back in the lowlands, my wife ordered walnuts from the local grocery store for curbside pickup first thing the next morning. So COVID. No walnuts. Supply chain, as they say, over and over. Even more COVID. The kids filling grocery store baskets in the wee hours don't care about the corporate bottom line. So our order was fulfilled, as they say, by substituting far more expensive back walnuts for the same price. What luck! When I was a child, my grandparents would go into the hills of North Georgia to gather black walnuts, which they dried in the basement. The husks stained the floor. My grandparents had a special cracker. It looked like cast iron for the stony nuts. Picking the meat out was laborious, but the flavor was, is, intense, incredible. My grandmother made a sort of butter cookie suffused with black walnut. So now I have, thanks to COVID, a wealth of black walnuts and a memory of long ago. I'm thinking ice cream and possibilities. One of the great things about cooking is that it presents the mind with so many puzzles, each of which has so many solutions. How might this work together with that? Would that be good? Would this friend, that family member, like it? Okay, so we're talking about ice cream. Not a whole lot more complicated than a souffle, just different. Three basic components and a problem. The components are dairy, sugar, flavor. The problem is that frozen things tend to be hard and hurt your teeth. So the task is to make a frozen dessert that is firm, frozen, not liquid, but not too hard. Consider, by way of example, shaved ice, or the bastardized version, a snow cone, or the fancy version, granita. The ice is hard, but is shaved so fine that it isn't a problem. But those are flavored ices made easy to eat by mechanical means. They aren't ice creams, and so they don't really undertake the task of freezing to just the right texture to be fun for a human. So how can we keep ice cream from getting too hard? One answer is suggested by the word ice cream itself. Churning the cream as it freezes beats air into the dessert, and fat does not set as hard as water does. So a tub of ice cream is nowhere near as hard as a block of ice. Churning cream is the solution to most all-natural ice creams. But there is a limiting factor. If you use too much fat or overchurn, whipped cream turns into butter, and frozen butter is not that great. So whipping freezing cream keeps the dessert from being a block of ice, but is not a perfect solution. Most premium ice creams tend to get too hard, and you might have to leave them out before serving, even pop them into a microwave. It's awkward. The vast majority of commercial ice cream is intended to be eaten immediately, mixed, or put on a kid's birthday cake, whatever. Such ice creams use something to make the product, quote, creamy, close quote, as the marketing folks say, meaning not too hard. Gelatin, gum, emulsifiers. 
This often helps the texture up front, but it gums up the mouth. Not good. A better solution is egg, which tends to inhibit hard freezing even as it holds things together. Eggs are a mystery, maybe the mystery, in the kitchen. So you might make a custard or even a gelato. Have you ever noticed gelato on the sidewalks of New York or open-air joints in Italy? No way those freezers are keeping things seriously cold. They don't have to. The egg does a lot of the work. And what might make a black walnut gelato, of course? The third answer is alcohol, nature's antifreeze, paradigmatically rum-raisin. The trick is to use enough booze to get the texture you want. Too little, and the ice cream is too hard. Too much, and it won't freeze. Three, three bears, I leave it to you. About cream. Get full-fat whipping cream, but try to find it without any gum. This takes work because gum makes it easier to whip. That and whole milk. Definitely not any sort of long-life milk. Raw milk, if you can get it. I usually go about 50-50. Coming back to the black walnuts, though, I'm thinking this might be a better, a little heavier on the cream. Let's say 60-40? Perhaps I will toast these walnuts. It's risky, though. My mind often wanders in a moment's distraction and the nuts will burn. Or maybe I will soak them in rum. One and yet another use for goslings. Or bourbon. Or maybe toast and then soak. A raw egg or two. Or we could get fancy and make a custard. That whole cook and then freeze thing never made complete sense to me though. Anyway, egg, especially if I go heavy on the cream, plus the notes, might be too rich. Vanilla and good cane sugar, of course, but now it gets tricky. Keep it simple so the nuts don't have to compete. But what about raisins? Rum raisin with black walnut? Black raisins? Golden raisins? How about dried cherries? Or perhaps a chocolate of some sort. What about torn bits of mint with a chopped up bittersweet bar? Or maybe this. A couple of tablespoons of pure cocoa, a little more vanilla, and you've made chocolate within the ice cream. It's magic. And magic in the world for your friends and family, maybe yourself too, is what I'm talking about. Even in, even after a pandemic. Even if the magic is in the imagining. Hope. This has been part two of After Hours at the Pandemia Lodge, a premature retrospective with recipes on intermittent signal from David A. Westbrook. Music by Vince Parlato. Until next time, and I hope there is a next time, take care.